In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, where we will be finishing up chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now, following the events in Samaria, Philip is guided by an angel of the Lord to a lonely desert road heading south. There, he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch, a high-ranking official in charge of Queen Candace's treasury, and he's returning from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And despite his devotion, the eunuch struggles to understand a passage from the book of Isaiah that he's reading. So Philip, prompted by the Spirit, approaches him and explains the gospel of Jesus, which results in the eunuch's confession of faith and his immediate baptism. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, July 28th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word thrives thanks to the unwavering support of listeners like you, whose prayers and contributions uphold KFUO's radio ministry. I'm also grateful to God for the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, our generous sponsor. LHF diligently translates, publishes, and distributes Christ-faithful, Bible-centered materials around the world. And the most inspiring part, they provide these invaluable resources for free to pastors and missionaries and those who need them. So discover more about LHF's transformative work and how you can participate in their mission by visiting their website, lhfmissions.org. Well, without any further ado, please join me as I welcome my guest this morning, regular contributor to the show. It's the Reverend Stephen Tice. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor Tice, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thank you, sir. It's great to hear your voice and be involved with this activity of sharing the word. Oh, always a great thing to do on a uh, on a Friday morning, it's almost noon, you know, almost lunchtime, so we're going to feed our souls with God's Word before we maybe go take a little lunch, at least where I'm at. So um, yeah. tell me a little bit about uh, how things have been going for you, hopefully well. Well, we're doing well. Uh, we're enjoying a nice warm spell down here in southeast Missouri. Uh, temperatures have been above 90 every day for the past eh, several days, and we had 100 last week, but... Ooh. Lord also sent rain last week, and uh, we always thank him for those gifts. Uh, the, the people at, at Emmanuel are in the process of continuing the call, seeking a pastor to serve them full-time. And as we do that, uh, we completed a vacation Bible school this year, and, and uh, it was a great opportunity to, to have some adults involved both in study but also in, in leading and guiding the kids. And uh, we had a couple of individuals who are not members of the parish were able to be involved with us, and so we can continue to touch the lives of people beyond one congregation just by doing something simple like a vacation Bible school. And that's the way the Word keeps sharing uh, in places that otherwise we wouldn't go. They come to us and then take it home with them. Wow. Well, that is that is good news. Always a great opportunity. In fact, we're starting here at St. John in Laverne. We're doing our, Bible, uh, our vacation Bible school, VBS. We're doing that next uh, week. So starting on Monday. Uh, it's It's I'm so grateful to have an excellent DCE who uh, does so much amazing planning and does a lot of that work. So I'm one of those uh, privileged few pastors who get to just be invited to show up and do what I'm told. And that's that's about where I want to be with VBS because it takes a lot of work, but it's such a rewarding thing to do. Yes, it is. And it's, it, again, it's the gifted people of God working in different places at different times. That's, that's one of the things we keep reminding ourselves as pastors, and then we 
try to pass it on to the people involved with us, that they are gifted by the Lord to do work. We as pastors have a task and, and need to do it, but they have gifts that go beyond ours or a different direction from ours, and together the Lord does great things. So, and I was just thinking about today being uh, on our commemoration calendars in the Lutheran Church, we commemorate Johann Sebastian Bach today, and he was a cantor, which is oh, a church yes. musician, not a pastor, but one of those gifted people, immensely gifted, who did things that the pastor couldn't do in preparing the, the weekly services, the cantatas, all those things. As you said, highly gifted, glad to have them around when the Lord blesses us with them. And so we're thankful for your director of Christian education and for the work he does with your congregation, too. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, our text for today, before we get into it, though, is one of these, I think, fascinating ones. I have a lot of things that I, I'm, as people know, especially if they've listened to the program, I'm not a lifelong Lutheran. So there, especially mm-hmm. as it relates to baptism and the practice of LCMS Lutherans, uh, I, sure. you know, I have some questions I've struggled with since I became a pastor. Uh, and I think I've come to some resolution over the past decade and a half, but I'll be interested to hear your opinion on the topic when we get there. But before we even step one foot in Scripture, I think it's a good idea that we start our time together in prayer, and you do this so wonderfully. So please, if you don't mind, brother. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, into whom we have been baptized. Good and gracious God, you give the gifts to your church to do the work you've called us to do. We thank you for the gifted ones among us and the gifted ones who preceded us. We stand in a long line of those who have been called by the Spirit to go to a place where someone needs to hear of Jesus. We ask your continued blessing on us today as we study and learn. We also ask your blessing on all those who travel in this season of the year when some are on vacation and others are traveling for work. Grant guidance and safety to them. We also ask your care and protection for any whose lives are disrupted or affected by changes in the weather. The weather is always under your control, but we don't always know what you are doing when you allow things. You always do. Help us to remember that your will is good for us at all times and that you work all things together for good for those who've called according to your purpose. Bless our study together and bless our service to one another in your name. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. So here we are. We are uh, witnessing one of the disciples— Philip, as he's going out and he's doing the Lord's work, he's doing wonders and signs that are accompanying the word that he's proclaiming. When we got together last time, we talked about uh, Simon the Magician and uh, how he came to faith, but then, well, he fell quickly from faith because he saw the power that was accompanying the words, and he wanted to buy some of that for himself. And, and that's kind of where we've ended up today. It's, it's definitely a, a different day, a different scenario, but is there anything else that you want the people to know might be handy for them to know before we get into our text, which begins with verse 26? Well, the, the persecution of the church has, is under process now, and Philip himself is one of those who Paul opposes, and when he goes to Samaria, as you mentioned, He's going to places outside of the people of Israel. The message initially was, go just to the children of Israel. Now, Philip's in in Samaria, which is technically a, I'm going to call it a mixed ancestry area, but it was not where Jesus sent them first. And now he's moving them beyond Jerusalem, beyond Samaria, and he's moving out of Judea into the region of the, the highway by Gaza. 
So we are beginning to see, even before Jesus calls Saul or Paul as his missionary to the Gentiles, we are seeing the movement away from Jerusalem of the Word of God. And that will continue. And this is the the first reference to a non, I'm going to use the word Jewish, and that's not the right term, but non-Hebrew ancestry person who is now suddenly involved. And this is the expansion of the the ministry of, of outreach beyond the ethnic community of the Hebrew people, although this man is connected to that in a way. But this, of course, is what Christ wanted. He wanted them to proclaim the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. Uh, you know, would you do you think that they would have had, or I always struggle with how to phrase this, the church is experiencing persecution. They definitely had the duty to go out and proclaim the word. I just wonder, and this is, of course, speculation. Almost everything I do is speculation. But I'm speculating that had it not been for that persecution, perhaps they wouldn't have been as motivated to spread out and and spread this message. I, I see God working even amidst the persecution is what I'm getting at. Oh, do you absolutely. see it the same way? Yes, I certainly do. And as I mentioned, you know, this is what I, in the prayer, as I was talking about the Romans passage where Paul reminds us that all things work together for good to those who love God, whom he's called according to his purpose. And his purpose was never sit in your hometown and wait for people to come to you. Um, And so the the persecution forced them to go away. Literally, they fled the city for their safety, but in fleeing the city of Jerusalem, they took the life-giving word of God to places they otherwise would not have gone. The phrase has been used for centuries the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's tied directly to this concept that when people suffer for the faith, they are then forced to speak about why it matters. And they end up going to places that otherwise they wouldn't have gone where people say, why are you doing these things? And why do you live this way? And the, the light of the gospel shines. So I think we can certainly say that the Holy Spirit sends Philip to a place that Philip wasn't going to go on his own. Well, and not only that, though, I think this is a message for our times today, because as is persecution the right word, certainly for some areas of the world, certainly in some corners of our own society, but I'll just use the more general term as we as we get more and more pushback, as, as Christianity is yeah. no longer favored in the culture, you know, a lot of people are lamenting these things, and I think we should, right? We should feel bad that more people sure. are coming to Christ. But I think at the same time, we might be missing the opportunity. I I mean, never in history has there been so many people who desperately need to hear the Word of Christ um, as much as they do today. Uh, And you you might say, well, why do you say that, Pastor? What about the time of Paul or before Paul? I would say, yeah, they certainly did too. But I think we live in a culture now that has regressed to the same situation that was going on during the early church, the same types Absolutely. of issues that they dealt with, we're de- dealing with today. There's no doubt about this. And for those of us who like to read history, and that's not everybody in the world, um, I see in the United States, one of the things happening now is similar to what happened in the collapse of the Roman Republic before it became an empire. And part of that was financial, part of that was political, but a big part of it was actually spiritual and moral. And we see these things happening, which led to the conditions in which Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians and talks about the, the whole understanding that 
the people living there had a culture that glorified things our cultures now glorify. And Christianity came to them and said, the creator has a different purpose for the things he's gifted you with, and he's called you to use them in this way. And our culture, no matter what country we live in, our culture always needs to hear that our creator gifted us for his service and to serve others in that process, not for our own gratification or our own aggrandizement, if I can use that big word, making ourselves bigger. Um, it's not about me. And I jotted down these words as you and I were talking. We, we still need to look past the moment and see beyond ourselves. And persecution is one of the ways we do that. It forces us to look beyond ourselves past the moment. And that's it's so important for us to see others as people for whom Christ died, first and foremost. And then we see how we can live in the moment for their benefit as well as for the glory of God. And that's a constant challenge I have, just like you do. Well, I just, I think of First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, right, which says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but of course do it with gentleness and respect. And I think throughout American Christianity's history, perhaps we've seen this, or at least in the past maybe 50 years, we've seen this as a verse that says, always be ready and willing to share Jesus with others. But I would say that in these last days, this is more a verse about be prepared for the persecution that's going to come. And as a person of faith, you need mm -hmm. to be able to defend your faith. In fact, I think that's how it always was intended. But I, I didn't really ever hear it taught that way that much. It was always about, well, you know, if your neighbor at work asks you about why you're a Christian, be sure to be able to right. tell them. I think mm -hmm. it's a lot more about if you're going to stand up for your faith, then you're going to meet resistance. And that resistance could lead even to death in certain cases. Sure. Therefore, mm -hmm. you need to be able to be you need to be sure of what you believe. You need to be confident in the faith that God has given you. And if you're not in the word, if you're not listening to shows like Thy Strong Word and you're never in the Bible or you don't go to Bible study or maybe you, you don't make it to church, you know, you're you're missing out on opportunities to prepared to give that answer. And the time might come where the world's going to demand that answer from you. Yeah. And, and the, the Apostle Paul, of course, he went through all this persecution. I mean, he lists the things he went through, shipwreck, persecution, whipping, stoning. I mean, somebody we can identify from Scripture physically, emotionally, and verbally attacked for the faith. And what he says is, you and I need to be rooted in Christ Jesus and then built up into him so that we can do exactly what you were talking about. Being in the Word is where we get that rooted in Jesus. And his words to the apostles in the upper room, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Not abide in me, and everybody will approve of you. <laughs> and, and that's so important for us to remember. We serve one master and not many masters. And the cultural... Uh, identity that says you have to conform or you're going you're gonna to get pushed back against, to use your term. We, we say, yeah, Jesus said exactly the same thing. If they did this to the teacher, what are they going to do to the disciples? But fear not, I've overcome the world. And this is, again, I try to urge this with the folks uh, that I work with any parish that I've served. We look beyond this moment. This, this isn't about right now. This is all, we're just passing through. And as uh, human beings, by definition, we all live in temporary housing. Paul calls them tents. So, 
with that wow, fact that's... in mind, we look to what Philip's doing here with this Ethiopian man. Absolutely. And this is a unique situation, too. We're going to look into it now, starting with verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, Philip's going to run over, but we're going to pause. Uh, while Philip runs over, let's talk about what's going on here. So an angel of the Lord says to Philip, head on down to south to this desert road, uh, and he does, and he finds an Ethiopian. Uh, who are the players in this account, right? Uh, remind us who Philip is, and then tell us who in the world is this Ethiopian eunuch? Okay, well, this is this is Philip, one of the, the followers of Jesus. You might recall that when the Greeks came to Jerusalem, they wanted to talk to Jesus. They went and found Philip because he could speak Greek, and then Philip took them to Jesus. So this is this is the witness to the Lord Christ, who is, by definition, one with a Greek name. And so this, this Philip is a, uh, a distinctively different one of the, of the servants of the Lord, that he starts off being called by a name outside of the Hebrew culture. And so he is already one who, when we encounter him, is doing things that make him point away from Jerusalem, and now literally he's being carried away from Jerusalem. But as, as you mentioned before, the, the uh, magician Simon, who got in trouble and Peter rebuked him, uh, this process involves a foreign man now, not Simon. Simon's a Hebrew name. So, see, that was one cultural setting. Now we're in a totally different cultural setting because this guy has come up to Jerusalem and he purchased a scroll of Isaiah. Two things involved there. One is those were not readily available anywhere. You can buy them in Jerusalem, certainly, but they were not inexpensive. And he's reading it. Now, here he is returning from Jerusalem. He's come up for what? Passover, Pentecost, these the booths. Again, reasons you would come to Jerusalem. Possibly sent to Jerusalem on government business from Candace, the Ethiopian queen, to the, the uh, seat of government for Judea. Uh, you know, Ethiopia and Judea would interact through the, uh, the Red Sea and, and shipping and commerce uh, down at Azen Gaber. So it's possible it had actually had uh, financial business for the, the ruler he served to be conducted with Roman representatives. We don't know. But what we do know is he was enough of a member of the community of faith that he was in Jerusalem and bought a scroll of Isaiah. And, I'm, and when we get a little bit further on here, we're going to find a, a couple of things that indicate he was actually a, a devout follower of the true God without being part of the people of Israel. Um, and so when we get a little further, we'll pick that up. But he's now returning from Jerusalem. He's on the road that goes back around the, the Gulf of Suez, loops around the southern part of the Red Sea, and returns along the coastal region to Ethiopia. So he's headed home. He's going back to the place he works, to the queen he serves. And as he's going, the spirit says to Philip, you're going to go down here and you'll meet this guy. And he's in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. 
So clearly he is a member of the community without being a convert or a proselyte. And we'll explain that when we get a little bit further in, but he did not go through the ritual process to become part of the community as of yet. Well, just a couple of asides, little uh, tidbits that I like to throw out there from time to time. Philip, I happen to know for personal reasons, <laughs> that Greek name is from phileo and hippos. It means one who loves horses. Uh, and yep. Candace, I was interested, uh, it was, I, was, I found it interesting when I found out that Candace is not her name. <laughs> I did not know that. Her name is Amantitere. Uh, Candace is the title, her title, um, which right. is uh, that of queen or queen mother of the kingdom of Kush, which is the what, what they would describe here as the Ethiopians at this point. Uh, just a couple of interesting things. But yeah, I find it very fascinating that, as you've pointed out so clearly, he's come down to worship. He is reading Isaiah, um, which... Uh, he not only has been able to afford this expensive scroll, but he's able to read it, which accounts for his ability to read in obviously Hebrew, uh, but certainly in the other different languages that are around there because of his, his function. He has a very important job and he's found right there on some, uh, some pretty big crossroads of trade. And so, yeah, what an interesting situation. Philip is going and by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going out and he's proclaiming to other people who have heard about the faith but don't quite fully understand it. Verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So again, pausing once again. Here we have Philip. He runs to him, and he hears him reading Isaiah. This concept of reading to oneself is a fairly new modern concept, is it not, Pastor? Yes, it is. The common practice for centuries was to read out loud. Um, and part of, you know, there's some, some deep deep uh, superstition rolls around with people who, who read without making sound but moving their lips because there were those who began to think they were doing something in secret. At one point in time, it led to accusations of, of false worship or even uh, witchcraft because you weren't speaking out loud. And, and that's because, as you indicated, it was so common practice that when you read something, you read it aloud. And I've shared with members of parishes in particular that if you read the Psalms, you really should read them aloud because of the value of the words themselves and the flow of the words. And then it hits your ear and you absorb it in a different way than if you just read it silently. And that's true about the other parts of Scripture as well. And, and I think we, the, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy to train people to give attention to reading the Word out loud in worship. Train people to read the Word aloud. And, and this reading of the Word was not just the, I'm going to use the word lecture as we think of it, it's also accent and emphasis, but the idea that everybody's used to reading aloud, but not everybody knows how to read aloud for a group. And so this is the reading he's hearing is the man reading aloud. And he asks the obvious question, you're making the verbal sounds. Do you know what you're talking about? And a lot of times people have exactly that challenge. Uh, they make noise that comes out of their mouth, but their, their content is not coherent. And well, that's kind of like the way I read Greek sometimes, you know, in my, in our oh, winkle, yeah, they go good. around and they, 
they they all read from the Greek and then translate it, and sometimes it's my turn, and I'm just sounding it out. I have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> but, That's okay. Yeah, not a problem. But, you know, I but, 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 learning. But seriously, I was thinking about this idea that you know he's reading out loud. It it comes. It brings to my mind the scripture that talks about faith comes from hearing, and people yes. will often say, well, "What about what about reading? Doesn't faith come from reading the Bible too?" And I think both of these things are taking that text out of context. But but really, it, it if you understand reading as not a personal, secretive, as you were saying, activity, but one that you're basically reading aloud to yourself, then you are hearing the word. And I think it makes a difference. Yeah. Just like when you and I do go to translate Greek and Hebrew and we're, we're translating it it slows us down unless you're, I guess you're a native speaker, but it slows people like me down enough where I'm thinking about the words as they're, as they're being written down as the, as they were, as they sound even. And, and those things change sometimes the emphasis of the text, which is you talked about people reading up front. I am one that doesn't practice having lay people read during um, the, the service um, and, mm-hmm. and one of the main reasons for that is because it does take a little bit of talent and preparation. That's the big word to be able to read those things, because the way you read something with your inflections and everything else can also interpret it. Uh, and so I think we have to be very careful in our worship. Um, do you typically do all the reading in your church or do you have trained lay people yeah. to do it? Yeah. yeah. There was a time when I was serving in, in Columbia, Illinois, we uh, had seminarians who were uh, preparing to be pastors, and they would frequently be doing field ed work in our parish, and they would sometimes do the reading, but it was, again, part of their training and then part of their learning how to do exactly what you're talking about, present the Word in a way that communicates content and intent more than just sounds. But yeah, I've, it's, I've always done the reading personally. Yeah, I just tell them, well, I'm already up there anyway, I might as well. But it's deeper than that. It's also a duty to be able to uh, proclaim that word with authority. Yeah. So Philip runs up, he hears him reading Isaiah, and he asks, and this seems presumptuous, I think, he goes, do you understand what you're reading? And <laughs> instead of the Ethiopian eunuch saying, well, of course I do, I'm reading it, he literally says, well, how in the world can I unless someone guides me? I think we have an idea of what that means, but maybe explain yeah. that as we get ready for break. Sure. Well, what we're looking at here is the spiritual content of the words. He understood the words themselves, but how they apply, what what the context is. Now, he's clearly acquainted with the content of Scripture beyond this passage, but he also does not yet have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the words have meaning, but he's not able to see the content in the spiritual sense. This is one of those key thoughts for us, and it shows up again and again in the book of Acts. The word of the Lord grew, but for the word to grow, the Holy Spirit has to give the growth. And, you know, Paul says that very clearly, the Lord gives the growth in his letter to the Corinthians. So what we're talking about here is the words cannot be grasped until the Spirit opens our eyes through faith, and then we see Jesus in the word. But without the Holy Spirit, We won't know who Jesus is. We won't see him properly. And that's what this man is struggling with. He says the words make perfect sense, but the content doesn't communicate what it's supposed to mean for me. And that's what Philip's about to do. Well, as I like to say, the Bible is for 
believers. And we'll talk about what that means and a lot more when Pastor Tice and I come back from break. So don't go anywhere. We'll pick up where we left off. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Stephen Tice. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Thy Strong Word is available for our amazing listeners in the St. Louis area on AM 850, but if you're not in St. Louis, how do you listen to the program? Well, you already know, but you can tell your friends to subscribe as a podcast on their favorite platform, or they can take advantage of the KFUO radio app, or they can be in the Word on their own time, and so can you, by listening live or catching catching up on KFUO.org. All right, Pastor, before the break, I had made the statement, the Bible is for believers, and I would maybe, maybe modify that by to say primarily for believers, because I genuinely believe that the mm-hmm. only people who can apprehend the Scriptures are those who have been given faith. Hence, we believe um, that Jesus loves us, not because the Bible tells me so, but because the Holy Spirit has given us faith in Jesus. And then with that faith, we can now understand the scriptures. I see that taking place right here with Philip and the Ethiopian. Yeah, absolutely. Philip has gone there because the Holy Spirit sent him there. And the Holy Spirit then tells him, go up and talk to the man. And, and this is the Holy Spirit directly sending one who can open the scriptures to one who can't open it. And that's the conversation we were just talking about. How can I understand it unless someone tells me? How will they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone is sent? And who's going to do the sending? Well, it's the people of God. In this case, the Holy Spirit directly sends Philip. But in our time, we as Christians send others, either missionaries or pastors or trained teachers of the word, to go to a place. You know, we were talking earlier about Candace, uh, the title of the Queen of the Ethiopians. And just to think about this yesterday, um, I went to college uh, one year. We had a student who came over from Ethiopia. And his, his personal statement was he believed his family was descended from, from the ancient emperors. But, you know, that's neither here nor there at one level. What I was thinking about is if you go to Ethiopia today, you will find a Christian church in which they will tell you they are storing the Ark of the Covenant. Um, you can't go in that church. Only the priest assigned to serve the church is authorized to enter the building. But they will tell you, carved out of rock, is this church in which they store the Ark of the Covenant. So the, the roots of, of Hebrew Christian religious worship practice 
follows down the, the Nile River over to Ethiopia, but they even claim that it was prior to that during the Babylonian captivity that somehow they say Solomon, but that's speculation all the way around, sent the ark there for safekeeping. We know the Queen of Sheba came to visit him. And in this process, what we're looking at is the fact that Christianity is not new in Africa. It's older than it is in North America. Most people miss that. And what I find oh, fascinating far, is far older. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, and, and I think that is such a key thing, because you think about maybe the 1980s and churches were en masse sending missionaries to Africa. You fast forward yeah. to the 2020s, and now we have the faithful African churches sending missionaries to us. Um, I think it's a reminder. It's a reminder that the faith doesn't belong to a particular culture or nation, um, even mm-hmm. even the Jewish nation, right? It belongs to sure. all of God's people. Um, yeah. And I think in these last mm-hmm. days, it's so important that we continue to build up one another. Well, Philip has run over. He's listening. He hears him reading Isaiah. I assume in the Hebrew, um, maybe it was in the Greek. Maybe that's why the Holy Spirit sent Philip. I guess I don't know technically, but but here is what mm-hmm. he was reading. This is the passage, verse 32. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth. And so the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news of Jesus. All right, pausing there again with the end of verse 35. So he's reading this text from Isaiah, one that we're, I think we're all pretty familiar with, um, and mm-hmm. he connects it to Jesus. Brother, maybe it's a good idea for you to connect this to Jesus for us. So what 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 did Philip probably tell him? Because we don't have exactly what he said. We just say that he began with the scripture and he told him about mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah, and I think I think a big part of this goes back to the the phrases sheep and lamb. Uh, the sheep is led to slaughter, and so we have the phrase that would have been part of the Passover meal, uh, the, the lamb of the blood that marks the door as a a man who had gone up to Jerusalem to worship, and possibly, as I mentioned before, we don't know what the actual occasion was. He may have gone for one of the festivals. He may literally have been there for Passover and just heard about and watched the the sacrificing of the Passover lamb and the eating of the the meal, the Seder, as it's now called, uh, the Passover meal. And, And so these terms would have immediately jumped right out from that liturgy. And so when the man's reading it, he's saying, wait a minute, uh, this guy Isaiah isn't going to be killed. He's not the one, and here he is talking. He's not being silent, so who's it about? And so Philip is able to point Jesus to him from this. And I think, it, you know, again, doing, doing some speculating, uh, he, was he actively involved in worship? Yes. Was he circumcised? Scripture doesn't tell us. We don't know. We can assume, but that's all we're doing. Uh, and, and so as he goes to Jerusalem, it's important to him to be in Jerusalem for this festival. It matters to him, and yet he doesn't fully understand what he's doing. If he does not see that Isaiah is talking about the lamb who is suffering and dying, only those in Jerusalem watching, and it's just the centurion who literally, standing at the foot of the cross, says, surely this man was the Son of God. Everybody else is going, oh, he's dead and buried him. What do we do now? 
you know, <laughs> where, where was faith at that moment? It was buried under sorrow and, and confusion, and I'll even say doubt, until the Holy Spirit lifts it up, and Jesus speaks the words to his disciples, and what does he say? He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And so this is the, the concept. This man is reading the words, but now Philip is bringing him the connection to Jesus, who is the giver of the Holy Spirit scripture. And we confess this in the creed, and it caused controversy in the, you know, the, the uh, early 300s when we had the, uh, the Athanasian creed pumped out, but then Nicene creed, does the Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son or just the Father? Well, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit out. So we're not going to get into that technical topic. But keep in mind that by the time they were doing the, the councils, the Ethiopian Christians would have had representatives participating in that discussion. This man goes back to Ethiopia, and he takes the information Peter or Philip has given him, and he begins with this scripture about how Jesus is this lamb who is tied to Passover, and he's the one. And back when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, and it says the Lord will provide the sacrifice, and there are the sacrifices in the, in the thicket, and they take him out, and, and all the symbolism tied to that stuff which, again, this man would have known by reference, if not fully having memorized. And then Philip takes him all the way up to Jesus being baptized by John, who points at him, says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then uh, the, the moving along through the Passover ritual, but also the miracles of Jesus, and then his own betrayal and arrest. And when he's a, before Pilate, he doesn't say a thing. He does not make a defense. Don't you hear all the charges they bring against you? But he answered not a word. This is clearly where he's pulling Jesus' trial before Pilate and his crucifixion right into this topic. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And Jesus was denied justice. He has not done anything wrong because he was the Son of God, and he wasn't rebelling against the Romans, and yet he was crucified. So he could take all and as a government official, by the way, the, the Ethiopian guy's going to get some stuff that maybe you and I as non-government officials would probably overlook. Of course, you're a trained attorney, so you probably pick it up anyway, but I wouldn't. So anyhow, when we look at this understanding that he's using what's going on, he was taken away from the earth. His life was taken away, but his life was taken away for the earth as well. And so he can take this concept of his life being given up willingly and he points to Jesus in this whole thing. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And he opens his mouth and says the words out loud. And I think, again, Jesus breathed on them. The Holy Spirit is given. God creates Adam and Eve, forms Adam out of the dust, and he breathes into his nostrils the, the breath, the ruach, the spirit of life. And he became a living one. This is the mouth is used to communicate. What I was thinking about earlier was John's gospel prologue. Uh, the, the, the light came into the darkness, and the darkness did not, and then you can translate that Greek word several ways, understand, comprehend, grasp, overcome. Couldn't handle it. Didn't know what to do with it. And that's the truth about our world today, too. The darkness doesn't know what to do with the light of Christ, and it can't grasp it. It can't overturn it, but it's not comfortable with it, so it has to fight against it. It's like it's going to sound a little weird, but if you ever raise chickens, you might know this. If you haven't, I'll share it. If you have a group of chickens and one of them is a little sickly or maybe has lost a bunch of feathers, the other chickens will pick on it and peck it 
until they literally kill it because it's different and they see it as a threat because it stands out and draws attention. And that's the way the world is when it comes to the light of Christ. The darkness must attack the light and tries to as kill someone, it, but cannot. I was going to say, as Go someone who, uh, who has not, not raised chickens in mass, but we, we definitely had a couple dozen when we were back in Connecticut. Yeah, I can attest to the truth of that. And, and as I'm looking through this whole situation, too, I also am struck by how similar the Ethiopian situation is to our own in this way. And this is what I mean. So Philip, he's reading, I'm going to say it's going to be the Septuagint. So he's reading the Greek Isaiah, and he knows uh -huh. the words, right? So Philip certainly knows the words because he's Greek. The Ethiopian knows the Greek because either that's the lingua franca or he just is well educated because of his position. Regardless, sure. they hear this passage about the suffering servant. Um, he might even know that it connects in some way to Israel's sacrificial system because he's been there observing it, perhaps. But right. he's not, he has not been brought up in the language of the faith. He has not been brought up right. in the Old Testament tradition. And so when he looks at it, he says, I don't exactly understand what this is saying. Today, sure. even even lifelong Christians who have been given a very steady diet of, say, New Testament, I think are at a disadvantage, and I think we are all at a disadvantage because we just don't have all of that Hebrew faith language and imagery in our upbringing. Unless, of course, you know, you do for some reason, but I think most of us don't. Most of us, the Old Testament is still a pretty closed book. And that's a shame because uh, it really helps us understand Jesus better. Oh, certainly. And this is exactly what Paul was talking to, uh, writing to Timothy about from a, from a child, from infancy. You've known the Holy Scriptures. Well, what he knew is the Old Testament. And Jesus says again and again, search the Scriptures, Old Testament. They testify about me and them. You have eternal life. And this is what I regularly share with people. There are cultural things referenced in Scripture that you and I just don't get, but the hearers in Jesus' time immediately got them. And that's why the, the need is there for translation. We were talking uh, earlier about the uh, Lutheran Heritage Foundation translation work. I just saw the recent publication about the Mayan pastor from uh, the Yucatan Peninsula and the fact that there are still Mayans in that community. And he goes down there and, and shares the word with them, and they don't speak in Spanish to each other. They speak in Mayan. Um, this whole understanding that you have a language of the heart, and Hebrew literally is the language of, of Jesus' heart uh, as, as a child of Mary and Joseph. And so we, we benefit from learning and observing history and, and culture in Scripture and beyond Scripture. Uh, a friend of mine is a Lutheran pastor, Kevin Parvis. I don't know if you've met Kevin or not. But Kevin serves at Kaiva Shalom Lutheran Church in St. Louis. He's nearing retirement now. And, and that's a community of, of Messianic Christians uh, who have many of them come out of a, a Jewish background. And so they have a cultural awareness that's different than mine. I'm familiar with the content, but the culture isn't familiar. And so Philip's, Philip's invitation by this man to explain to him is a chance to open up Scripture he doesn't see and doesn't know anything about. But it also allows him to say, here's how you carry this to a new community and you open it to others. See, this is part of the modeling Philip's doing so that when this man returns to Ethiopia, and by the way, you may know this already, there are more Lutherans in Ethiopia today than there are Lutherans in all of North America. 
Hmm, I did not know that, but that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, um, but you're. The, the but I like God. what you pointed out. I want to. I want to uh, illustrate or highlight sure. something you just said, and that is that Philip didn't go to Ethiopia and say, "All right, here's what this means." And now you know what I should go with you so that I can tell all of your people what this means. <laughs> no, instead, in a small way, he, as you said, he's equipping the Ethiopian to go and do that for his own people. Now, this is to speak nothing of professional missionaries, except for the fact that I think that the main role in, they will say this, is to equip the people to build up their own church, to proclaim Christ, right. not to mm-hmm. have, a, a, I guess, a, a satellite office of our church, but rather um, to build up their own and, and raise up pastors and leaders from among their own people, because it just yeah. makes sense that that's who people want to hear from. Uh, and it brings with it credence and credibility. And and it all ties back to what I mentioned earlier about all of us being connected to the, the vine who is Jesus. We are the branches. And so as long as we're connected to Jesus, that's the connection that matters, not the parent church, if you will, not the, the missionary that first came over. Um, had a couple of professors when I was at uh, college and seminary who had served in mission fields, and they occasionally had comments that I found fascinating and, and insightful. One of them, looking in, in the cultural context of the community served and said, when you build a church building, don't put any permanent benches in because then you limit the use of your building. You can only do one thing with it, and, and that's not a good way to use the resources of the church. Well, you know, in most of the parishes I've served, we've had permanent benches, and that building is set aside for worship and and. And it, in one sense, copies the Old Testament pattern where you have the house of God for worship only. But on the other hand, it, it as, doesn't address the question of how do we help the culture see who Christ is. And so it's always fascinating to me to have foreign experienced individuals, whether they're lay or, or clergy, who have lived somewhere else, lived in a different culture, come and hear me say something or see what we're doing and ask, why is that done? Or have you thought about doing this differently the, the people of God grow and connect to each other and learn from around the world. So this is, again, the, the, you know, the, you get there up in Minnesota, and, and they, they tend to go ice fishing once in a while. Down here where I live, nobody goes ice fishing because you'll fall through. So <laughs> what, what do you have to know? You have to know the difference between the culture and the climate. Some things that work well in one place. The thing that always struck me about the, the missionaries in the Philippines is they always wore these white, white uh, shirts that, they, you know, they're loose, they're, they don't have a button collar, and I'm thinking, no, oh, they didn't get dressed up. No, they did, different culture, but also in the climate, it made them stand out because they were wearing the white shirt that said, here's something different. And, and so it's just different world we live in from other parts of the world, and yet all human beings have the same need, this knowledge of Jesus Christ. We, we need to be shown that Jesus is for everyone and for every culture, and our challenge is, is to recognize that our cultural blindness will keep us from hearing and seeing certain things. It's like the parables of Jesus. As a child, I heard them growing up, and, and, and I was raised in a Christian home and a Lutheran congregations. My father was also a Lutheran pastor. And so from infancy, I'd known the Holy Scriptures in English. Occasionally, my dad would say stuff in German, too, but that's a different issue. Uh, but in the process, I heard the, mirac- the miracles of Jesus, and I heard the parables. I heard them for decades, and so I, I've got them memorized. And then when I got older, I started hearing them, and hearing them in a cultural context of the Hebrew people whom Jesus spoke to. And every one of the parables has this element where suddenly his hearers are going, 
wait, nobody does that. What is he talking about? But because I've heard them my whole life, I didn't know that. The father runs out to welcome back the son who wasted the inheritance. And to me, it's, oh, he was excited to see the son. He couldn't wait for him to get home. He ran out to greet him. And in that culture, a man running was a great social offense. Uh, An adult man didn't run anywhere. And, And everybody's going, wait, wait, no father would do that. Yes, our father would. And that's, again, it's part of the the joy of the gospel is that it's in there and you just don't see it until one day the Holy Spirit grabs you and shakes you a little bit and says, hey, pay attention. This is what I told you. (laughs) And, And so what Philip is able to do with this man is to say, here's what's always been there. You've heard these things for a long time. And, and now I show you Jesus, who has always been in this message. But he opened scripture to him, just like Jesus did with the, the Emmaus disciples. He opened it. He showed them what was always there, but they didn't know how to see it because they had the wrong lenses on. And sometimes as, you know, as Lutherans, we, we focus on a law gospel um, paradox of, of reading the, the scripture to understand that it's both law and gospel in there. And we have to be sure that we understand who the listener is so that we know how to read the word to them. Now, I often think about Jesus said uh, in John 14, the Greek is, is very clear. It's either indicative or imperative. Believe in God, believe also in me. Or you believe in God, you believe also in me. Or maybe it's believe in God, you believe also in me. The emphasis Jesus used speaking it would have made it clear to the, the apostles in the room with him, but you and I can't hear it. So we have to figure it out on our own. This is part of that need for us to speak it out loud and to speak it with hearers in mind who need to hear either law or gospel so that we give them the right emphasis at the time they need it. This man in the chariot, he doesn't need law. He's struggling to understand it. He needs gospel. And so he opens up Jesus to him right away. Well, he must have got to baptism at some point because starting with verse 36, yeah, it says, uh, and they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? So evidently, Philip had said something about baptism. So verse 38, just to finish our text, and uh, he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Aztus, um, Azotus, I should say, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Um, we only have a few minutes left in the program, but I wanted to get to something I said at the very beginning, and that is, as a LCMS pastor for about a decade and a half, but not a lifelong Lutheran, um, mm-hmm. one thing I've always struggled with is the congregational practice of if someone who is not baptized— comes to faith through the Word, which is good, they can, and they did, and God does use that, um, right. mm-hmm. that we will then sometimes require six, eight weeks of classes before baptizing them. That's a practice that I'm not really in favor of, um, uh-huh. mostly because of situations like this. Perhaps you can either convince me otherwise or explain um, why we don't, why, why is it more standard practice that we don't just baptize people, as that's what's happening here. Sure. Well, the, the first thing we have to ask is, what's their, what's their actual spiritual background? Do they have a knowledge of Scripture already? Because this Ethiopian man obviously has some awareness of Scripture. He's come to Jerusalem to worship. He understands the, the, the temple. He understands the sacrifice. There's stuff he's already got as background to which Philip can add Jesus as the, the finishing piece. 
if somebody comes to us and says, I believe in Jesus and, and I'm, I'm a sinner that needs salvation, please baptize me. Okay. Well, what do you believe about God? Is there one God or many gods? Because a Hindu can say, I believe in Jesus. That's not a problem for a Hindu who believes there are many gods. Jesus is God. No problem for a Hindu to say that. So um, we, we always have to do the personal application. It doesn't require six weeks per se. It requires you being as a pastor able to say, this man has, this woman has enough knowledge of Scripture to be able to affirm that they believe who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Even if they don't understand all of Scripture, they can read through the creed and say, yeah, this stuff all is something I believe because it agrees with Scripture. And that's the key, creation yeah. of the world. All that I, I, and, I, so, and, and, I, and I do want to interject just because we only have a few minutes left, but yeah. I, I definitely agree with that point, and it's certainly something I certainly practice. You want to make sure people know what they're doing, especially if they're adults, yep. and mm-hmm. et cetera. Coming from the, say, Southern Baptist tradition, as I have, it took a lot of soul-searching and Scripture reading to come to a, um understanding of God's will that infants be baptized. And sure. those things of which you're requiring adults before they get baptized, you cannot require of infants. So that's why I no. feel like our practice is a little – because we can't look at the infant and say, well, what does he know about the faith, or does he really right. understand mm-hmm. the creeds? Sure. But we baptize them anyway, trusting that they'll well, be raised up in the faith. Yeah, sure. And and part of, the, part of the issue here is if the person is truly repentant and, and acknowledges that they're a sinner that needs Jesus Christ, then th- the reason to prevent baptism is – so that they haven't made an impulsive choice without really weighing what's going on. And I say that in the sense of pastoral care, not academic analysis. Oh, of course. Okay. Well, I wish okay. I had time to ask you about the parents who are just baptizing sure. because yeah, Grandma Schlitzendinger <laughs> wants them to. Yeah. Oh, but you know what? We don't have enough time. I literally just got the two-minute mark from St. Louis, so we are right here at the end. But I do want okay. to give you the final—I do want to give you the final word. 60 sure. seconds, brother. The, 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 the key phrase here is, what is to keep me or prevent me from being baptized? As a eunuch, this man knows that he's been excluded from entrance into the house of God in Jerusalem because the old covenant doesn't allow him entrance into the house of God. Does the new covenant have the same exclusion? And the answer is no. He is invited in. He's not excluded. Nothing pushes him away. And as a eunuch, he is not prevented from being fully part of the people of God. It's a completion of the covenant that was incomplete until Jesus arrives. And this is the gift we offer people now, the complete relationship with God and Jesus Christ. And it never depends on us. It always depends on God. Wonderful conversation as always, brother. This has been the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Thank you, brother, for being on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. And sometimes we'll have to spend a little bit more time talking about baptism of infants and adults and what's going on where. I tell you what, I think that's a great idea. I'm going to reach out to you after the show about a particular opportunity we might have to do that. Uh, Folks, Saul, now, you remember Saul. He's that fierce persecutor of Christians. Well, when we come back tomorrow—oh, I'm sorry, Monday—he's going to embark on a journey that will forever alter the course of his life and, really, the Christian faith. En route to Damascus, he has a divine encounter. It leaves him blinded and questioning his beliefs. Uh, But he is brought to a faithful disciple— Ananias, who restores Saul's sight and baptizes him in the name of the Lord. Transformed and rechristened as Paul, he then sets forth to preach the word of God, the very faith he sought to dismantle. It's an amazing story, and it's God's story, and it's your story. So tune in with us on Monday as we keep the story going. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all. 
As we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong work. Thank you.